so sorry. I have a dog who never barks, and you can. That's fine. That <laughs> I was thinking, uh oh, if my dog hears her dog, then it's over. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. We are continuing our series on digital equity today with the discussion of how the digital divide specifically impacts students and families in areas of concentrated urban poverty. With me virtually today are Dr. Maria Petrie-Martin, the superintendent of Petersburg City Public Schools, and Dr. Avril Smart-Goggins, Research and Engagement Manager for Future Ready Schools at the Alliance for Excellent Education. My name is David Naff. I'm the Assistant Director of Research and Evaluation for Merck and the host of this podcast. Thank you both for joining me today. Dr. Maria Petrie-Martin, we'll, we'll start with you. What does the digital divide look like in high poverty urban school systems? There are certainly a few characteristics of um, the digital divide within high poverty and urban school systems. Um, and as someone who has worked in different states um, and in school districts in which there was um, challenges regarding poverty, I think I have seen many of these things in, in multiple areas of the country. You know, very often we talk about the need for broadband internet access. Um, and when we talk about that, it's very different from just saying you have access to the internet. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily get that having access does not mean you have broadband internet access. Mm. Um, and so very often we are walking around with handheld devices in which we can get access to different digital resources, but not necessarily broadband, which means uh, students are unable to stream videos. Um, students are not able to do a, a click and drag activity. Um, and so broadband internet access just really opens up the door to really use the full capacity mm. of what the internet um, has to offer globally. So very often uh, it's an affordability issue in high poverty communities. It's not that they don't have the, the bandwidth, if you will, or the fiber optics, if you will, but the issue really becomes the affordability to purchase broadband internet access. I also think that, you know, very often because people have handheld devices, um, we think that's enough. And in order for many of our students to do the level of instructional work that we expect, very often you need a laptop, um, you need an iPad, um, you need um, a different type of device to be able to do the things that you need to do. Um, so I think that is an, another issue um, as well. And then also, I think very often in high poverty, urban school systems, environments, people are so busy working multiple jobs, mm -hmm. their ability to understand all of the different ways that digital content can be accessed may not be there. Hmm. 
And so I know, you know, in the work of North Carolina, which is where I was most recently, and then being here in Petersburg the last nine months, I have seen some consistencies in school districts and even state education agencies not really working with parents to ensure they know what is going on um, with digital content Hmm. and remote learning. Um, I think for some of our parents, that might be a part of their work world where they use devices, they use broadband internet, they're used to using Zoom and all these, you know, fancy uh, things. But for parents who may not use that in their work life, they don't have that expertise. Hmm. So when the pandemic hit, it became very clear to us, we maybe had trained students and we probably had a lot more work to do in that area as well but we knew we definitely had not trained our parents and our guardians to be able to do that level of instruction. So I've seen some consistencies as I've gone from state to state, but things like broadband internet access, making sure that students have the devices to do the level of work that's required of them, making sure we're training our parents, not just our students. That creates a bigger and bigger digital divide. And that's definitely what I have seen, but I've seen it in other communities as well. Yeah, I'm curious about the comparison with your work in North Carolina, because you've worked all across North Carolina, and that includes mm-hmm. rural and urban communities. And we, in a previous episode, talked about what this looks like in rural communities, because we serve that in the Merck region, too, with like Goochland and Powhatan County. Uh, how do you feel like this issue sort of looks different for an urban school system compared to a more rural school system? Thank you so much for asking that question, because I've reflected a lot on the differences coming from North Carolina into Virginia. At at the root of it, the kids still don't have internet access, okay? So that's kind of the bottom line. But what's intriguing, and when you really reflect on it, you determine the why they don't have it. In your rural communities, the access is not there because they maybe don't have the the fiber optics. They haven't worked with a provider, um, which could be a Comcast or an Xfinity or or CenturyLink that has pushed into that community to be able to provide that service. So the service itself is just not there. Um, What I have discovered now that I'm in Petersburg which, you know, is in close proximity to Richmond, is in very much close proximity to other similarly sized uh, districts like Hopewell and Colonial Heights. The issue is not accessibility, it's affordability. Mm. But regardless of what the issue might be, the outcome is still the same. And Mm. that is students don't have broadband internet access. So one of the things we're doing in Petersburg we are looking at grant opportunities that normally would be focused for accessibility of the internet Mm. and really using our goal of getting affordability and a service to all members of the community as the main function for pursuing that grant. Mm. So we are thinking ahead um, because of what has happened. It has taught us a valuable lesson. Mm. We are not ready to go to remote learning across the board, not only because of the lack of devices, but the broadband internet access. It's affordability in some places and it's accessibility in others. That's a really helpful framework for for considering this. And uh, Dr. Smart Goggins, I know that this is um, a big part of the work that you do. Uh, What do we know about what causes disparate access to reliable internet and devices in these communities? 
Um, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to be on your uh, podcast today as well um, and joining uh, the amazing Dr. Mary Patricia Martin <laughs> on this. Um, she covered a lot of, of what is the pattern, I would say, nationally when it comes to access to broadband internet access. Historically, and, and this data has been collected from the American Community Survey since 1984, we see the pattern of connectivity in terms of internet access and device access increase over time. So we know that it's increased over time. However, the key part of this conversation is reliable internet access and reliable devices. And so that is the issue that, that we should really focus on. We know that schools and districts across the country are moving to more digital learning approach to education. However, one of the things that slows that process is the fact that so many children are going home without access and they cannot continue their learning outside of the school walls. And so some of the causes, as Dr. Petrie Martin alluded to, are affordability and the fact that the devices that students do have access to, for example, a cell phone or a tablet, are not fully aligned with the learning that needs to happen outside of school. And she described streaming videos, for example, or drag and drop activities and certain math activities as well cannot be done on the devices that students have access to. So those are two of the primary reasons. And that data from the American Community Survey shows that over 14 million students still do not have reliable access at home and are unable to continue their learning once they leave school. Wow. And so nationally, again, the reasoning behind that uh, largely is affordability, right? So mm. parents are having to choose between what is viewed as a luxury uh, cost compared to something that is more necessary, right? So when it comes to your rent and or food and or childcare, for example, internet access is viewed as a luxury cost, especially mm -hmm. if you already have a cellular phone or you have another type of device in the home that, that uses internet in another way. And mm -hmm. so affordability is a huge reason behind some of the work that my organization has done to push the FCC to leverage funds that have been allocated toward connectivity to out-of-school access. And we're working with them now, pushing the chairman, Ajit Pai, to make the decision to use those resources to extend learning beyond the school walls. We've mm -hmm. had huge gains, and North Carolina is a great example of that, where we've had few, huge gains in uh, increasing the access for schools um, within the school day. Schools are very well connected in North Carolina and in many states. However, nationally, the problem and the trend is that schools are getting connected, but students are having to limit their learning to school walls because when they go home, they do not have that reliable access. And so affordability, like I said, is a huge barrier, but also proximity and location. So speaking to rural schools and districts, that is a challenge as well, is that they literally physically do not have access because it's not possible to get access there. And so that is a charge that many organizations are leading to try to extend that fiber optic connectivity in those neighborhoods, in those areas where um, schools and students can really take advantage of that. And then schools are being creative, right? So you find schools using things like MiFi, MiFi devices and having loaner programs where they send students mm -hmm. home with those devices to access learning beyond school walls. Mm -hmm. They're using offline sort of approaches as well. So doing a lot of the work online and then doing some work offline and uploading it when they get back into school. 
And then other school districts are using the Wi-Fi on buses, which uh, was something that was started a long time ago by many districts, but is becoming more popular and more practical given what we have going on with coronavirus at this time. And so those are different ways that students are trying to have like a stopgap solution to uh, access beyond the school day. And uh, those two causes are, are the primary reasons I would say that I've seen is affordability and specifically proximity for those rural districts and also different parts of the country where it's literally not, a, not an option. Right. Yeah, this is clearly central to the work that you're doing at the Alliance for Excellent Education. I'm curious about how how is the focus maybe shifted or sharpened since COVID, since like what our schools are going through right now, how has that informed specifically your work moving forward? Well, I, w- I would say the, the lack of access has come to the forefront um, significantly in the last month and a half since we've had this social distancing um, across the country. And I think it's because it's exposing something that we know since we're in the work has been always there, which is the lack of equity for students who mm-hmm. are um, lesser, farthest from opportunity and, and literally did not have those same advantages to learning that digital learning provides. And it's become more popular, I think. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more visible um, in the media and nationally. And so we've gotten great opportunity to galvanize our, our network of educators through the Future Ready Schools program to really get behind our effort to push the FCC and to stand up for our students who do not have access. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really just sh- shown a light on the gaps that we knew already existed in learning and specifically related to technology because it not only affects students now, it's affecting everyone, mm-hmm. right? So part of the reason why people care so much now is because if their internet was disconnected today, it would literally affect their well-being and their livelihood right. moving forward. And so the issue is more salient today, and, mm-hmm. and we've gotten to really shift and prioritize that in our in our list of different projects um, because the it's it's a hot topic. Right, absolutely, and that, yeah. that definitely makes us think of internet not as a luxury, right? Exactly. When it goes away, that your your world is severely disrupted. It's a requirement. Yeah. It's a requirement, and when you think about elderly populations, it's important to their health, right? To accessing Medicare and uh, medical coverage. It's all related to being online. And maybe before this interview, I would have said relevance is an issue too. (laughs) Why some people do not have broadband access at home because they didn't think it a relevant sort of uh, expense that they needed to focus on. But today it's become more relevant for older populations because of healthcare and access to your doctors and your physician and your physician's assistants or emergency care. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that internet permeates this different challenges we have in, in, in our lives. Right. Yeah. I'll yeah. be curious to see how we can, how we think about the purpose of internet on the other side of this. And Dr. Petrie Martin, I know that this has um, been top of your mind in, in Petersburg. Can you talk about how this issue has come to the surface in your division in the time of COVID? Absolutely. And as someone who was new to Petersburg, knowing that um, a lot of work had happened before I arrived to ensure that students had devices. Actually, in our schools, we had a device for every student, um, really third grade all the way up to 12th grade. And we knew that our high school students were taking those devices home. But again, they were arriving at home and not necessarily having the broadband internet access to continue their learning at home. But in some cases, documents have been downloaded uh, to Chromebooks, and so they were able to continue their learning at home. 
So we knew that we had devices that students could have at home, but we knew that the internet access was going to be an issue. I'll be honest, we have used the process of handing out hotspots, which Dr. Smart Goggins mentioned, but you know, what's been interesting is that our staff also had a need for broadband internet access in the home as well. Mm -hmm. Because we had about 30 staff members who did not have broadband internet access in the home. Mm -hmm. And so with that being said, it caused us to not only focus on hotspots for students, but also for staff. But then as staff brought their hotspots into their communities, they did not have powers to connect to because they lived in such rural parts of Virginia. So it was like an onion, right? And we talk about how you have layers of an onion and you continue to kind of peel, peel. And, and as you work with the layers, you discover more and more. So we have learned through this process that we have to take care of our staff in this area first. And we have to ensure that, you know, our staff not only have devices, but they have the broadband internet access in the home as well. And then of course, having the broadband internet access uh, for our students. The next thing that has surfaced for us is the work with our families, our parents and our guardians. I think across this country, parents and guardians were totally caught off guard mm. with the need to provide instruction in the home. Right. Um, and so the first efforts that we put out, we were having students go into their, their Clever accounts to access resources that we had shared with them. But in doing that, our parents had not been coached on what that meant. Hmm. So we were sending out um, through multiple methods, instructions on how to get into these resources, to get to uh, instructional resources and activities but we saw that there, there was clearly a struggle because we really had not worked with our family. So we had to shift gears about a week and a half to two weeks into this COVID-19 journey. And we knew that any resources that we shared with families could not have an, an access code that they were going to have to work through, was not going to have a registration process that they were mm -hmm. going to have to work through. So we had to take a step back because so many of the educational resources that today require registration or require an access code. Right. Even if it's free, there is a process just to get in. Hmm. So we had to shift gears uh, once again and provide educational resources that were easily accessible by one click. Mm -hmm. Because we found that if that was the case, people were more likely to use it. Mm -hmm. So these are all things that really just unveil themselves through this process and you certainly cannot make an assumption. The other thing for us that has surfaced is how we communicate with our parents and guardians needs to be very, very different. Hmm. During the first couple of weeks of the COVID-19 process, we were continuing to use things like our, our uh, Blackboard system for sending out computerized uh, messages via the phones. We were using Class Dojo. Those are systems that teachers can text information uh, mm -hmm. to our families. Um, and again, we had to determine what is the best way to communicate based on number of hits. So for example, we were loading up our website with numerous resources, but on any given week, we were only getting about three to 400 hits to our website. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah. if we posted something on our Facebook page, we were getting three to 4,000 hits wow. on our Facebook page every week. So again, we have to shift our communication focus and use more of social media strategies as opposed to our website. Hmm. So again, these are all things that over time have surfaced, which means that even when we return back to normal, whatever normal will be, we know that our website is probably not going to be our main tool for communication. Mm -hmm. and, and that we have to shift our communication and actually develop a social media strategy for how we communicate with our families as we move forward. Hmm. We also discovered the need for social media influencers, which is not something I think we would have discovered um, if we had not been in this COVID-19 period. So we have individuals who, of course, are on our Facebook page who really chime in as questions are being posed about the work in our school district. Hmm. What we have discovered, looking at number of hits for those individuals, they are influencers in our community. Hmm. Therefore, how do we utilize those influencers to be our messengers for the work? Hmm. Um, and it really is that concept of, you know, one person tells five people, those five tell 20 and then it continues on. So we're actually excited about what we've learned in the area of communications during COVID-19 because it will totally change the way we communicate with families moving forward. And what, what kinds of stakeholders are those influencers? Is that students and educators, family members? Who, who do you find is having the biggest voice right now? So right now in our community, it is definitely our parents and former graduates. And okay. that's really critical um, because we have several influencers who may not live in the city of Petersburg anymore, but they graduated from Petersburg High School and they are very invested in seeing the success of the school system. So they continue to stay involved. They continue to watch the information that is put out there. Hmm. One of the things we know we have to do is certainly pull in our students. We have learned the students are not our biggest Facebook users. It tends to be um, our older constituents who are. So we will be looking at a different type of social media, maybe you know Instagram or something else that really hits the student market as opposed to Facebook for folks who are you know, 25 or older. Mm -hmm. Definitely parents and our former uh, students. All right. Well, building off of that, um, Dr. Smart Goggins, I'm curious, what, do, what are some of the effective strategies that you found in your work for addressing digital equity in, in urban school systems? Sure. And, and before I jump into that, I wanted to touch on a little bit of what uh, Dr. Petrie Martin mentioned in terms of the issues that are surfacing for districts. Mm -hmm. um, so in addition to communication with families, um, one of the things that we're hearing is pacing is becoming a challenge as well um, when students are remote learning as districts are not really able to get a handle on what's an effective pace for learning when students are outside of school. In addition to attendance, right, how do you really capture attendance or how do you um, understand whether or not students are actually in learning mode during the time in which they're expected to be. Uh, and then also grading, right? How do you understand the growth that students are demonstrating in this time when school is not school anymore? It's a different type of learning and, and you need to really address competencies and skill development in a different way. And so uh, those are also three issues that I would say districts are challenged by. For the Alliance and for Future Ready School, 
schools. To Dr. Petrie Martin's point about communication, we've ramped up a lot of our uh, communication strategies to social media, like Twitter, like podcasts, and those types of easily accessible and digestible information, Mm -hmm. uh, because not only are students taking advantage of that more, but so are educators, right, at different levels. You have professional learning networks on Twitter, on Facebook, that are really active in these times because again, everyone is at home. And so they really want to find ways to connect and share information that's reliable and relevant to what they're doing right now. And so we've taken advantage of that and launching a podcast that we're calling Leading Through Unprecedented Times, where Mm. it's our way of sharing with district leaders, here are some strategies that have worked from educators who have been doing this for several years and who have had their successes and challenges. And so that's really taken off for us as a way to connect with our leaders outside of what we've already been doing on social media. Um, We also do Twitter chats, which are effective at at any level, I think, as a national organization and as a district where you have these quick conversations with leaders, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook, and they're still able to get information and connect, but it's in a way, again, that's more accessible Mm -hmm. and it's already a part of their everyday communication strategy, if you will. And so it just fits right in with what they would normally be doing. To your question about effective strategies that we've seen, and I alluded to this earlier, but this school to community partnerships is a big important piece of addressing this out of school access challenge. Schools and districts uh, often see it as a problem that affects them, but not necessarily a problem that it's their responsibility to solve uh, by themselves. Hmm. And so we are encouraging and seeing a lot of school schools and districts finding organizations in their local communities that can support their efforts to encourage students to get connected or to, to help them get connected outside of school. So we've featured many districts who have done programs with commercial businesses where they offer a time or a window of time where students can get access to their internet uh, without necessarily being a patron of the business. In this time, that, that works a little different because um, restaurants are not open, but students are able to go into the restaurant or to be in the parking lot, for example, and access the Wi-Fi there to do their schoolwork. Mm. Um, schools have sort of uh, amended that strategy to uh, allowing students to, or encouraging students to pull up to the school and sit in the parking lot with their parents if they can and do work that way and to gain access that way. Another way is to leverage those partnerships with local internet service providers to provide low-cost internet access opportunities for students who are a part of a school district or a school. And that's actually um, been working pretty well for some districts so far. Um, And then there's also the hotspots, right? So a lot of times cell phones providers will provide hotspots at lower cost to schools and districts so that they can extend those opportunities to students outside of school. And then the most interesting one, I guess, to talk about is the Wi-Fi on buses, right? How does that work? And the idea is that your school bus will serve the similar roles like your router in your home where Mm -hmm. you park it in a community and students who are within a certain mile radius of the actual school bus can access the Wi-Fi for free, Hmm. given a password and access information, and continue their work that way. So we've seen a lot of really creative ways that districts are addressing out-of-school access, and they're great for in the moment and possibly a short period of time, but one of the challenges is how do you sustain that 
and what do you do when resources to purchase MiFi devices or to purchase school buses to get hotspot out to the communities? What do you do when that's over? And so we're working with districts to try to figure out what that looks like. Hmm. And obviously, again, pushing the um, FCC to try to help with that, that need. I think what makes the strategies effective and most effective, though, is when districts take the time to really evaluate the extent of that gap, that homework gap that lives in their, in their districts and in their schools. So what does that really look like? Where do those students live? What are their needs? What devices they have at home? And so I always like to encourage districts to take a step back and take a beat and, and really evaluate what the needs are before addressing it with a specific strategy. So it, it may be that you can partner with your city government to, have, to use community centers as a place where students can go do their work certain days of the week, or it may be that a MiFi device can address 60% of the students who do not have access at home, as opposed to another method. So it's really important to really understand the context and to evaluate what the needs are specifically before choosing a strategy. But those are a few that we've seen um, working so far. And honestly, I have to commend uh, district leaders and school leaders for being so creative, because mm. even though many of them were attempting some kind of digital learning strategy, whether that's one-to-one or they're doing professional learning, they've really had to pivot in a short period of time to try to address a need that some of them did not know was there and some of them knew was there, but they were taking their time to address it. And so they're really being creative and I have to commend that. I'm, I'm really always excited by the leadership that so many of our school leaders are demonstrating right now. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been reflecting a lot on like, what must it be like to be a, a superintendent right now and to try to exactly. pivot with this many students that have this level of need. And I love the idea of the, the school bus routers because there's a lot of parked school buses right now. So we just strategically part them um, exactly. to be able to provide Wi-Fi access. And for someone who's listening to this podcast who likes to get information from podcasts, where might they find your podcast? Um, our podcast is on every every platform that podcasts are provided. You can also visit futureready.org and uh, visit our site for the recordings. And we also do video recordings of the podcast as well. So if you're more inclined to watch the video, you can do that as well. So yeah, we encourage everyone to kind of take a minute to see that things are possible, to learn from a leader who has had great success and also has had a lot of challenges, but pushed through it. Um, and it's been going really well. Um, they're led by Tom Murray, who is the director of innovation at Future Ready. And it's, it's been really, really fascinating to see how educators are, are eating it up. Yeah. So when you're finished listening to this, go and hop over there and get some more resources. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Smart uh, what do you hope that we're going to learn from this experience? And how do you think schools will look different on the other side? I've heard a lot of leaders talk about what will we do differently. And I think for me, the biggest thing that I want to see carry forward is this appreciation and praise for educators um, yes. and for a lot of the work that they do day in and day out. But beyond that, I also want to see more effort put towards taking care of students' social and emotional needs right? So I like to think of this COVID crisis like Katrina or any other natural disaster where students are displaced and their families are impacted in ways that last far beyond whatever they would experience in education, but they carry that with them when they go back into school and they carry that with them in the classroom and in their learning settings. So I would love for educators to really take the time to figure out 
what resources they can provide to students to support them after this crisis in the way of their emotional needs, right? Mm -hmm. That's one way, and, and I would hope that's the, at the forefront, but strategically, I think what I would love for districts to do is to be thoughtful about how they spend any stimulus that they get in terms of addressing digital divide issues and addressing digital learning to think really strategically about mm -hmm. how to design a transition that fits their needs. So, mm -hmm. and then think about the problem that you want to solve and keep that at the forefront of your planning efforts, because it's really easy to say, or to think linearly that, okay, if I buy, you know, 10,000 devices to address this issue of lack of lack of access for students, then that will fix it. But the reality is you still have to train your educators on how to uh, conduct effective instruction with technology in mind. You still have to train your students on how to use technology for education as opposed to for social engagement or the other ways that they're used to using it. Mm -hmm. So I, I really hope that district leaders, school leaders are becoming more thoughtful about how they launch their transition and uh, how they address these resource needs for students and also obviously their social emotional needs and their teachers' social emotional needs as well, right? So teachers are taking on a whole nother level of responsibility because of this crisis and it's showing. And so it's incumbent on those leaders to make sure that they're providing supports for teachers in that way and students in that way moving forward. Yeah, the social emotional piece is so critical. We have a team that's looking into some rapid response research related to that. And we've been looking in the literature and the closest thing that we can find is like coming back from Hurricane Katrina or other natural disasters or right. school shootings. And there's some good takeaways to glean from that literature, but this is unprecedented. So I think what we're learning right now is going to set sort of a new standard moving forward for how to meet the mental health needs of students in schools. Dr. Petrie Martin, you get last word. How, how do you think schools are going to look different after this? So I definitely agree with what Dr. Smart Coggins has said about a different level of respect and understanding for educators and what they do. I think will definitely come from this. I do think that instead of us thinking of social emotional learning as this side activity that you, you might need if students need it, we need to think of it as part of the curriculum. Um, it's not separate and apart and students absolutely will need it as we move forward. Uh, and it's funny you should mention the hurricane displacement work. Someone who was born and raised in the state of Louisiana and then has spent 10 years in North Carolina, I've done a lot of work post-hurricanes to work with families. And the work that I've done over the last couple of months is very much like the work I did in other states. Mm try to help school districts get back on track after a hurricane. And so I do think if we think about it that way, and the fact that families are displaced, you might have parents who've lost their jobs. Uh, you might have, you know, families where two and three families are now living in one home um, to be able to have a safe haven through this pandemic. If you think about it that way, you know, social emotional learning has to be at the forefront of what we do right actually before you even get to your content standards uh, you have to address that yeah. the other thing that i would say is something that we talked a lot about in north carolina and that was learning anytime anywhere that's where i hope this will take us so that way our teachers are learning anytime anywhere 
because they have the resources, they have the devices, they have the broadband internet access, and our students are learning anytime, anywhere because they have the broadband internet access and they have the devices to do that work. And, and knowing that when you walk into a school where we say we're one-to-one, -one, we're truly one-to-one. -one. And what does that look like? Not only to be one-to-one -one in a brick and mortar building, but one-to-one -one when students walk out the door and they go into their, their neighborhood. And so I'm hoping that that totally changes uh, because of what we, we have. And so now when we say learning anytime, anywhere, that truly is the case uh, as we move forward. And it's not just because of a pandemic. That's the way we do business. Yeah. Well said. Agreed. Yeah. I imagine we'll be stronger on the other side of this. And I'm so grateful Absolutely. for both of you for the work that you're doing with this. Um, and we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you would like to stay up to date with research resources and profiles of best practices in the time of COVID, you can check out the Merck website at merc.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. That's merc.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. Our goal is to make this website a clearinghouse of relevant information as we navigate our new reality together. And your contributions are critical to that effort. So please share your recommendations for resources that you have found helpful, as well as educators who you know are innovating in distance learning. Uh, thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work we do at Merck and to all of our member school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, Powhatan, and Richmond Public Schools. Our thanks today to Dr. Maria Petrie-Martin from Petersburg City Public Schools and Dr. Avril Smart-Goggins from the Alliance for Excellent Education for joining us and sharing your perspectives on how we might address the digital divide in urban schools and communities. Finally, thanks to you at home for listening. We hope that you and all who are important to you are well. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon. Good job, guys. Thank you. Thank that you. was fun. I, I